You're listening to the Hui Kala Baptist Church Podcast coming to you from the heart of Honolulu. Hui Kala is a committed family of faith that loves Jesus and loves one another. Grab your Bible and prepare for preaching from the Word of God from Pastor Anthony King. So, but tonight uh, we find ourselves, what happens after we fail? Turn your Bibles if you would to Psalm 51. <laughs> I hope you have some goals that you have set for the new year. Um, I hope that you've uh, taken some time and thought about some areas that you can grow in your, uh, in your personal life. I hope you have some physical goals, some emotional goals, some spiritual goals, some mental goals, some uh, ways that you want to be better. Uh, I was talking to a friend this week. He said, do you have any New Year's goals? I said, I do. And he says, how many you got? I said, like 25 of them. And so I have to go back every single day and look at my goal sheet to see how I'm doing to, to keep up with that. And so my friend that I was talking to, I said, I've got probably 25 goals or so. And he said, one of my goals for the new year is to hit 10,000 push-ups this year. And I go, oh, my soul, that's ridiculous. But I thought, wait a minute. That's like 28 a day. That's like, that's, that's total. Like, you can do 15 in the morning and 15 when you go to bed. I go, dude, that's easy. And he goes, well, then do it. So now I have 26 goals. Uh, and so, uh, but here's the thing. Here's the thing about it. Uh, by like first day, I hit it, 30 push-ups, no problem. Next day, 30 push-ups, no problem. Then this, by January 3rd, this is no lie. I'm not making this up. I'm laying in bed trying to fall asleep. And I think to myself, I didn't do any push-ups today. I am a loser. I am a despicable excuse for a human being. I'm a terrible person. Uh, this is just not going to work. I should have I picked an easier goal. I should have said like 30 push-ups for the entire year uh, or something like that. And I went to bed not having done my 30 push-ups for the day. So the next day I had to get up and do 60. And then I realized if I wait like three days, it's going to be like 90. If I go like a week and a half without doing it, I'm just never going to catch up. I'll be done. You know, just forget it. Try again next year. But I thought to myself, life is like that, isn't it? Many times we have all these ideas of who we're going to be, what we're going to do. Uh, maybe you have some goals set that you've already missed out on already for the new year. I know I have. One of my goals was to feed my kids better food because we're just, we're just kind of like convenient sometimes. Hey, let's grab this, grab that. And so we, gotta, we have an Instapot already. I thought, man, we'll buy some chicken breast, throw them in the Instapot. We'll have chicken breast already in the fridge. It's easy. You know, we'll buy the microwave broccoli at Costco. How hard can it be, Right. Where did we find ourselves last night at 8 o'clock at night in the drive-thru at Burger King getting chicken fries? I've never seen a chicken shaped like a fry before, so I'm not sure exactly how, what part of the chicken that is, but I'm suspecting it's probably not anything good for my kids. Uh, and of course, they got a, a milkshake and, a, and an icy and stuff like that. And I thought to myself, I'm a failure as a parent. I just, everything I try to do, I just utterly fail. And I found that that's just life. We have the best intentions, but many times we blow it. I hope in the year ahead, you'll want to be a better Christian. I know that I do. I want to be better in my Bible reading. I want to be better in my understanding of who God is. I want to be better in sharing my faith with other people. I want to spend more uh, quality time in prayer. But I'm telling you this, I've already missed out on some of those already. What happens when we blow it? That's what we're taking a look at tonight. Psalm 51, if you have your Bible, I would circle, star, underline Psalm 51 in your Bible. This is a place that you need to come back to on a regular basis. Uh, you need to have something in your Bible that marks this. as like, this is a place to come back to on the regular. Because when you mess up and you feel like an utter failure in life, you need to come back here because this passage will help you. Uh, Psalm 51 is written by uh, David. Uh, David was a... Uh, 
a man after God's own heart. He was a good man. He was the first good king of Israel. He would be uh, kind of the standard that everyone would hold kings to from then on out. Uh, if you were to read through the book of uh, First and Second Kings, whenever it talks about a king, it always says, always compares him to David. If he was a good king, it said he walked in the ways of his father David. If he was a bad king, it would say he walked not in the ways of his father David. David was kind of the standard of excellence as far as God was concerned. He was the first good king and probably the lasting good king as far as Israel was concerned. When we speak of Christ, it says that he will sit upon the throne of his father David. Again, David's a really, really big deal. But if you know anything about the life of David, David was really good at blowing it. He blew it as a king. He blew it as a warrior. He blew it as a father. He blew it as a husband. He blew it as a child of God. Again and again and again. And so David had one major colossal failure that we think of when we think of uh, David's sin. Uh, David had gone out. The kings were supposed to go to battle with their army, and David decided he wanted to hang back instead and be lazy and sit around the house. David went out on the balcony one night, uh, one day, and saw a woman bathing naked on the rooftop across from her. He said, hey, guys, go get that woman for me. I said, well, we can't really do that, David. That's Uriah's wife. He says, I don't really care. Bring her to me. He bought Bathsheba to himself, and they uh, were together in a sexual relationship, and Bathsheba gets pregnant while her husband's out at war. She sends word to David, David, uh, uh, I'm pregnant with your child while my husband's out at war. And David said, great, I can fix this. I'm the king. I can fix anything. So David calls her husband back from war and says, Uriah, you've been fighting so well, man. I want you to go and just spend a, a few nights with your wife. Enjoy your wife. You guys, you need to relax and let your hair down. And Uriah's like, King, I got guys on the battlefield that are dying. I can't come back and enjoy a night with my wife. And David says, no, no, you have to, you have to. And what did Uriah do? He went and slept out on the front porch of his house, wouldn't even go into his house. So that didn't work. David's uh, idea of trying to make it look like Uriah had gotten his own wife pregnant. And so David sent word to the men and says, hey, put Uriah in the front of the battle. The hottest place that the fire is at, put him there. And David essentially signed his death warrant and had Uriah killed so that he could have his wife. So Bathsheba now becomes David's wife. She bears a child. The child is sick from birth and eventually dies as a result of it. And, and slowly we begin, if you read through the book of 1 Samuel, you slowly begin to see David's life just completely unravel from that point forward. It was a mess from then on out. And David, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, after he had saw what he had done with this woman and her husband and the death of his child, he wrote Psalm 51. So if you can imagine the lowest that a man could be, this is where he was at. He realized he had blown it. He realized he had messed up. He realized everything that he had worked for in life had exploded in his face. He was not only an adulterer, he now not only had a child out of wedlock who had died, but he was also a murderer. And at the same time, he was supposed to be a child of God. He was supposed to be the king. He was supposed to be the standard of excellence in God's eyes. And so David pours out his heart to God in Psalm 51. That's where we find ourselves tonight. Psalm 51, if you, uh, if you have headings in your Bible like I do, it says, the chief musician, to the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet had come unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Psalm 51, verse number one. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold with me, uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou shalt be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering, and the whole burnt offering. They shall offer bullocks upon thine altar. Sin's a big deal to God. It always is, it always will be. When you and I disobey God's word, when you and I rebel against God's commandments, that's always a big deal to God. The Bible says that we can't stop sinning. It's part of who we are. Being a rebel is, is woven into our DNA. The Bible says that we come forth from our mother's womb speaking lies. And the Bible says that there's none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I've broken God's laws, you've broken God's laws, and it's not something that we did one time when we were in high school or that one time in college. It's something that we do continually on a continual basis because it's part of our nature. But because sin is a big deal to God, God has to judge sin. There's a penalty that must be paid for our sin. Just like if you get a parking ticket, your parking ticket, the cost, the consequences of that, you gotta pay $35. How do I know that? Because I've had to pay a few parking tickets in my day. Now, if you were to park in a red zone, like what we have out in front of the church, they don't ticket or tow on Sundays, thankfully. Uh, but if you were to park in a red zone and you were to get a ticket for that, a ticket for parking in a red zone, a loading zone, is $55. There's a consequence that must be paid. How do I know that? I've gotten one of those before, too. When we break the law, there's always a consequence attached to it. When you break God's law, there are consequences attached to it. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, we have earned ourselves a position in hell for all of eternity. That's the judgment for our sin. That's the payment that must be paid. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That means that we have to die one day and be separated from God because of our sin. But the good news is God loves you and he made another way. His name is Jesus. Romans 5, 8 says, but God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the good news. Jesus came and was born 
in the form of a man and died in your place. You see, you were supposed to die, but Jesus died for you. I was supposed to die because it's my sin, but Jesus paid for my sin in my place. But it requires me to allow Jesus to make that payment on my behalf. You see, I can reject it just as I can reject a gift that someone tries to give me. Just as I can, uh, somebody offers to pay for dinner, I can pay for my own dinner. I'm a, I'm a grown man, I can pay for my own food. Or I can receive it. And either you can pay for your sin by being separated from God for all of eternity, or you can allow Jesus to pay the price for you. I highly encourage you, allow Jesus to pay the price for you. You see, if you'd be willing tonight to accept that payment, you could be what the Bible calls saved. Saved from your sin, saved from hell, saved from eternity separated from God, and saved to a new life. You see, without Jesus, we are enemies of God, but by Jesus, we are adopted into God's family. And for every person in this room tonight, there must be a time in your life where you have put your faith and trust in Jesus and become a child of his. The Bible calls that being born again. And Jesus says in John chapter three, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So sin's a big deal to God, it really is. If sin's a big deal to God, it should be a big deal to you and I. We should not enjoy sin. We should not seek after sin. We should not get entangled in sin because sin displeases God. And what I found in Christians is that many times Christians go to one extreme or the other when it comes to dealing with sin. We either have sin in our lives that we're just like, meh, what's the big deal? Ah, everybody sins. Nobody's perfect. That's why we can be forgiven. Sin's not that big of a deal. And if I, if I use some language that I shouldn't, or I go out and get drunk, or I, I look at pornography or something like that, it's not that big of a deal. That's what forgiveness is for. It's not that big of a deal. But then I've seen people go to the other extreme where they completely and totally obliterate themselves by every small sin. Oh, I didn't give that guy an invitation to church. I'm such a loser. I'm a terrible Christian. Oh, man, I don't even know if I'm saved or not. Oh, and they begin to beat themselves up over their own sin. Both of those extremes are wrong. You see, we don't get a license to sin because we're forgiven. Romans chapter six makes that very clear. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You can't do that. By the same token, my sin was put upon Jesus and he's already been punished for my sin. I don't have to be punished for it. I'm free, I'm forgiven, I get to move on. David beautifully sums all this up for us in Psalm 51 here. I encourage you, I told you to make note of this so you can refer back to it later because when you get stuck in your sin and you feel like dirt, come to Psalm 51. Or if you get stuck in your sin and you just really don't care and you don't feel like it's that big of a deal, come back to Psalm 51 because it'll set you right every single time. And let me just tell you, the Bible will set you right every single time. One of my favorite passages of scripture in all the Bible is the Psalms. The Psalms are very emotional. Uh, we find in the New Testament, as Paul writes to churches, he's very doctrinal. He's very practical in some cases. Uh, here's what Jesus' blood has purchased for us. Here's how Christians should live from here on out. When you read through the Psalms, you feel emotion. How long will I cry out and you not hear me, God? Have you forgotten me? All of my enemies are around me. They, they hate my guts. They want my head. And you're nowhere to be found, God. Where are you? 
and you feel raw emotion through the Psalms, and I love that. As you read through Psalm 51 here, you see a guy who was gripped with his own sinfulness, and how did he deal with it? How did he process it? We'll take a look at that right now. First of all, the very first thing he did was he ran to God. So when you're stuck in your sin, run to God. When you fail, when you blow it, the very first thing you have to do is go to God. Verse number one, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. He appeals to God's grace. God, you're so loving, you're so kind, and I want you to have mercy on me. The word mercy means to not give me what I deserve. David knew exactly what he deserved. His predecessor, the first king of Israel, Saul, had the kingdom taken from him because he disobeyed God. David knew that that was on the table and it was at stake. He knew the stake of his family was on the line. And he says, God, have mercy on me according to your loving kindness. He also knew that God was forgiving according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Take my sin and expunge it from my record. I don't want any part of it whatsoever. The very first thing he did was run to God. You see, many times when you and I get caught in our sinfulness and we get stuck in maybe a cycle of sin, we run to our guilt. And we pour on our guilt. I'm such a terrible person. I can't believe I'm stuck here again. I can't believe I've got this. We begin to run to other sin. I don't know if you're like me, but there's times where I've, I've thought to myself, I'm gonna start eating more healthy and I'm, I'm gonna stop going through the drive-thru and, and I'm gonna stop uh, eating cheeseburgers and, and French fry, hamburgers and French fries. I don't do cheeseburgers. Uh, that's a story for a different day. No, but uh, I'm gonna to, uh, get more healthy. And then I have a slice of pizza and I think to myself, well, I've already blown it. I'll have a bucket of ice cream too, right? And I'll add hot fudge on top of that. Then I'll go back and get a second bowl because I've already blown it. I'll start again tomorrow. And I've known people when it comes to sin, they do the same thing. Yeah, I've looked at pornography already and Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust, it's the same as adultery. So I mean, what's really stopping me from just going all the way? Stop. The answer to sin is not more sin. Run to God first and foremost. Secondly, this is important, own your sin. If you take a look at what David did, he didn't blame it on anybody. He owned it. Take a look at verse number two. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. You know, it's funny. As you take a look at David here, David says, hey, I blew it. Nobody's fault. This guy, buck stops right here. You contrast this to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God goes to Adam and he says, Adam, what happened, man? He says, well, God, this woman that you gave me caused me to sin. Total polar opposite. And many times when we're caught in our sin, we wanna look for somebody to blame. Well, I wouldn't have done this if so-and-so hadn't have done this. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that dude over there. Well, this would have never happened if I hadn't stopped with the excuses, just own it. I raised my boys with this idea that I was taught at a young age, when you mess up, just say, I blew it, and it won't happen again. Simple as that. I don't want your excuses. I don't want to know how it was somebody else's fault. Just own it. And David does that masterfully in this passage. I messed up. It's only my fault. Now, I think a lot of people would have looked at this up. Well, Bathsheba, if she's bathing herself naked, does she have a more discreet place to do it than the top of her house where there's windows around? 
I mean, like, could you find, could you maybe put up a curtain around there? Well, I sinned, but it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the naked lady on the roof across the way, right? David says, no, no, this is, uh, he doesn't even mention Bathsheba's name in this whole thing. I messed up. I take responsibility for what I've done. This is the beginning of restoration. Thirdly, he repented. Repent. The word repent means to change your mind, which results in a change of direction. I was going this way, but I stopped. I turned around and began to go a different direction because I changed my mind. When we change our mind, we change our heart and we change our actions. That's what repentance means. Repentance is not, I'm sorry. I messed up, I'm sorry, what's the big deal? That doesn't even begin to touch repentance. Repentance is a four-step process. First of all, I'm sorry. Now, the word I'm sorry just means I feel bad that you feel bad. This is not owning any responsibility for what we've done. This is not absolving the other person of any type of uh, wrongdoing. This is just saying I feel bad. If you have a, a friend who has someone in their family pass away, you'll say, I'm sorry for your loss. Well, was it your fault? Did, did you have anything to do with it? No, it's just I feel bad that you feel bad. And so when I say I'm sorry, this is not the end of the process. This is the beginning of the process. I realize I've wronged you and I feel badly about that. I'm sorry. Secondly, I was wrong. This is important. I'm owning what I've done. I've messed up. And this process will not only help you in your relationship with God, this will help you in your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children, your relationship with your coworkers, your relationship with family members, because we must become professional repenters. Because we're gonna mess up until we see Jesus. Simple as that. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. I realize that I've wronged you and you rightfully hold something against me. I get that. But I'm sorry, I feel bad that you feel bad. This is my fault and I want you to forgive me. Would you release me from whatever obligation I have? How can I make this right? How can I make this up to you? I know the hurt that I've caused. I can't undo this. David can't undo his sin with Bathsheba. He's already blown it. He can't bring back the guy that he had put to death. But he can say, I'm sorry, and God, I want you to forgive me for that. But here's where repentance really turns the corner. Fourthly, I will change. This is not just, I'm sorry. Can you, just, just forgive me, it's fine. It's not a big deal. Uh, just forgive me, I said I was sorry. I can't tell you how many marriage counseling conversations I've had where he sit down and he goes, I've told her I'm sorry a hundred times. I don't know how many more times I can say I'm sorry. Well, have you changed? No? Well, then she doesn't care that you're sorry. This is the process of repentance. This goes for our relationship with God. It's not enough to just say, God, I'm sorry. God, I know I messed up. No, no, no. I know that I'm wrong. I feel badly about that. I own my sin. I want to be forgiven, and I want to live a different life from here on out. This is repentance. This is restoration. That leads us to fourthly, seek restoration. (laughs) 
Take a look at verses uh, 7 through 12. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Uh, Hyssop was a cleaning agent that they would use. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide my face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He wants to start over here. I want to take all that I've done and I want to leave that in the past. I want to leave that behind me and I want to make this right with you, God. And would you cleanse me from all my unrighteousness? Would you blot out my transgressions and act like they did never happen? You see, in biblical times, they would write on scrolls. And after they would write on these scrolls, the papyrus or whatever type of uh, cloth that they would write on was very expensive. And so what they would do is they wouldn't throw it away when they were done. They would take a rag and they would wet it and they would blot out all the ink and start over. He said, would you blot out my sins? All the wrong things I've done. Can we just wipe that out and start over? David's seeking restoration. But you see, he has to go through the process of repentance first. Look, if I've wronged my spouse, it doesn't do any good to say, hey, can we just act like that never happened? Can we just like move on and just pretend like that never happened? It'd make life so much easier for me. Yeah, I'm sure it would. But repentance brings about restoration. And he says, purge my sin from me, make me whiter than snow. Verse number nine, hide, out, hide thy face from all my iniquities and blot out mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. I love what he says through here as he goes through. First of all, I want to be clear on something right quick. Uh, Verse number number 11, he says, cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go. The Holy Spirit was given for a purpose to be used and then it was taken away. Uh, The judges in the book of Judges would receive the Holy Spirit to work on behalf of God. Samson had the best superpower of all, I think. The Holy Spirit would come upon him and he hulked out and tore people limb from limb. Man, if I got filled with the Holy Spirit and started doing that, wouldn't that be awesome, right? Think to yourself, uh, he took the jawbone of a donkey and killed a thousand people with it while the Holy Spirit was upon him. And when he was done doing that work, the Holy Spirit left him. Uh, uh, Saul, the predecessor to David as the king of Israel, received the Holy Spirit. Once he sinned against God, God took away the Holy Spirit and sent him an evil spirit instead. And so the Holy Spirit would come and go as needed. Here's a beautiful promise from God's word. If you are a child of God here tonight and you've been saved, born again, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you and nothing can ever take that away from you. It's now a permanent gift to all believers to work, do the work of God on his behalf and it resides in you and you can never do anything to lose it. Now the Bible says when we willingly sin against God, we grieve the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit resides in us and is grieved like, oh, I can't believe you just did that. Oh, wow, that really hurts. The Holy Spirit is grieved by that, but the Holy Spirit will never leave us. That's a promise that God's given us. Number five, use this as a testimony of grace. Verse number 12, he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation 
I'm telling you this, the most miserable Christian in the world is the Christian who is stuck in sin. You just see it all over their face. They're miserable because they know where they were created for more. They know that God expects more of them. And they're not content living this low life because God's created them for greater things. David knew that. He realized he had messed up. He realized he had sinned against God. He says, God, would you give me back the joy that I had before of being a follower of yours? One of the quickest ways to come back and enjoy the joy that you have in your salvation is repentance. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But notice what he says in verse number 13. Then will I teach the transgressor thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. You know what David says? This story of what you've done in my life or what you will do is gonna be a story that we can tell other people that have been caught in sin as well. He says, I wanna take this and use it as a lesson to teach others of what not to do. I can't tell you how many guys I've sat across the table for, from that tell me that they're gonna divorce their wife that bring up David. Well, David, David sinned and everything worked out okay for him, didn't it? Have you ever read the Bible before? You think things worked out well for David? <laughs> David, let's see, had a daughter who was raped by a half-brother and he did nothing about it. So then what happened? That half-brother turned on his own father, had him on the run. David's the sitting king of Israel and he's living in a cave because his own son wants to kill him. And what happens? One of his sons ends up being killed by one of the guys that works for him. Then, while David is laying on his deathbed, he has a son who automatically assumes the throne of Israel in his place, even though he's not the rightful heir. And David is laying on his deathbed having family drama, having his kingdom that God built under him torn in two amongst his knuckle-headed kids. Hey, please don't tell me things worked out well for David because they didn't. And if you think you can sin against God and everything's gonna turn out all right, you don't even understand how this whole thing works. You cannot sin and prosper. It does not work that way. You cannot sin against the grace of God and just hope everything works out. It will not work out. Sin brings forth destruction every time. Sin, when it is done, the book of James tells us, brings forth death. It will die, and it will die in a most miserable way. You're never gonna get away with sin. David realizes that, and he says, I want my story, I can't go back and undo what I've done, but I want my story to be a story of grace. I want my story to be told to other people where I've come from and what you've brought me from. And David wants to use this to help other people. Finally, verse number 16 and 17, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. David says, if I can make this up by just giving you an offering, that would be nice. The Catholic Church tried this to uh, fund one of their uh, cathedrals that they were building. They called it indulgences. Hey, your sins can be forgiven if you'll just write a check to the church and we'll cash that and we'll call it even at that point. But you know what David says? God, I know you don't want my offering. I know you don't want my money. You want a right heart in me. And so the last step of this process is to keep our heart fixed upon the Lord. Verse 16, thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. I can't bring anything or give anything to you that would make this right. And I know that. 
But verse 17, he says, but I know what I can do. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. You see, God doesn't want us to do penance. Penance is not a biblical concept. The idea that I would do stuff to make God not be so angry at me is not a biblical idea at all. And this passage here even tells that. God, if I could give an offering, I would, but I know that that's not enough for you. You want me to change my heart. God doesn't want us to repeat prayers or do good things to try to make up for what we've done. He wants us to change our heart. God is greatly concerned with the condition of your heart because out of it, the Bible says, are the issues of life. How does David make sure he never winds up here in this place again? He takes care of his heart first. If he doesn't fix his heart, nothing will change. And so when we find ourselves messed up, when we find ourselves stuck in sin, when we find ourselves as failures, we need to run to God, own our sin, repent, seek restoration, use it as a testimony of grace and keep our heart fixed on the Lord. Some final thoughts tonight and we're done. First of all, we will continually sin until we see Jesus. You and I will never be perfect, ever. The idea is not that as Christians we will be sinless, but that we will sin less. You with me there? I can't be caught up in the same sin continually. I will make mistakes. I will blow it. I will mess up. And when I do, I need to run to God and seek his forgiveness and restoration. But we can't have a fatalistic mindset that every time we sin against God, we're worthless human beings. But at the same time, we cannot celebrate our sin and just expect God to forgive it either. Both of those extremes are wrong. We must never use our sin nature as an excuse to sin. I can't say, well, you know, I'm just a sinner. What do you expect? I had a man that I discipled uh, when we lived in California. He came from a rough background, was, was involved in some gang activity in high school, and the Lord saved him and was being to get him to do good work in him. We were going through discipleship, and one Wednesday night, we're sitting down and talking about things in the Bible, uh, and he let a, an F word slip. And I said, hey, 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 I don't know what you know about God, but Christians don't talk like that. And he says, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just a gangbanger from L.A. I mean, what do you expect? I don't know what I expect for gangbangers in L.A., but I know what God expects for his children, and that's who you are. You're not going to use your past as an excuse to sin. Well, it's gonna take a while to change. Then we'll, then we'll be patient, but we're gonna change. We're not gonna make an excuse for our sin. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've confronted people about their sin. They go, well, I'm not perfect. What do you expect? I expect you to live according to the Bible because it's what God expects. So we can never use our sin nature as an excuse to do what we wanna do. We can never presume upon the grace of God the idea of presuming upon the grace of God is this idea that I'm gonna sin and God's gonna forgive it. I'm gonna premeditate my sin and just expect that God's gonna forgive it. Friend, you cannot presume upon the grace of God. And let me help you with this. You can choose your own sin, but you cannot choose your consequences. Keep that in mind. And I promise you this, it's a far higher price than you want to pay every single time. Next, our sins have already been paid for. Know this, if you're a child of God, your sin has already been punished. And it was punished on the cross of Jesus Christ. If you are saved, born again, adopted into the family of God, a child of his, if that's you, your sins are, have been put to death 
on Jesus himself. The Bible says he took upon himself the sins of the world and was punished on the cross for our sins. You don't need to punish yourself any further for him. You don't have to carry the guilt of your sin because Jesus already carried the guilt for your sin. Now, friend, if you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, you've never been saved or born again, know this, your sin is 100% upon you. You will feel the guilt and shame of your sin until you die and you'll be separated from God forever to feel that guilt and shame for your sin forever. But I don't want you to go there. God doesn't either. That's why he sent Jesus to die in your place. But friend, if you're a child of God, your sin has already been paid for. And if you're a child of God, you are righteous. God has declared you righteous. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you and see your sin. If you're a child of God, he looks at you and sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we cannot get stuck in a rut that I'm just a sinner. This is just who I am. I'm always gonna do this the rest of my life. I can't get over this. This is just who I am. No, no, no. You are a righteous child of God. You need to begin to live like that. You're no longer responsible for your own sin. You need to live like you're forgiven. And you get to move on from that. We're not defined by our past or our failures. We don't allow what we've done in the past to define who we are. I'm a child of God, I'm forgiven. My sin is in the past, it's under the blood of Jesus Christ and I carry it no more. Because of what Jesus has done for me, I'm forgiven. I was talking with some friends who are um, in recovery from alcoholism and they said, we go to these meetings and these people stand up and uh, he said, most of the time when we stand up, we say, uh, hi, I'm Bob, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I've been sober for, for two weeks or whatever. And he says, we've got these people though that they say, uh, hi, I'm Bob and I used to be an alcohol abuser. And he goes, and we all just kind of sit back and roll our eyes at that, like, oh, who do they think they are? And I go, you know who I probably think that they are? I think they're probably Christians. He goes, really, why is that? I said, because if you're forgiven of the sin of alcoholism, you don't have to carry that badge for the rest of your life. You're no longer defined by your sin as an alcoholic. You're someone who used to be something, but you've been set free from that. And he goes, whoa, I never thought about that. Yeah. Because so many times people carry the weight of their sin, the guilt of their sin. For many people, their sin becomes their identity. It's who they are. But God says, no, 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 you're not that. You're my child. And my identity now is not who I used to be or the wrong that I've done this past week or 10 years ago. My new identity is I'm a child of God that's completely and totally forgiven. And God looks at me and says, that's my son. That's my boy. He's part of my family. Because God doesn't see our sin. Final thought here tonight. Failure is not final. At some point in the... uh, in the year ahead, we're gonna pull over for a few weeks and talk about mental health and suicide. I've lost more friends than I care to count to suicide because they feel like their failure is final. I've known Christians who've taken their own life because they felt like the sin that they were in was so deep that was the only hope that they had. Friend, let me just tell you this, whatever your failure is, I don't care what it is and I don't care to know what it is. I'm telling you this, there is hope in Jesus and it's never worth taking your own life for, ever, ever. And know this, as your pastor, I love you and I pray for you every single day and if you ever have the thought in your mind 
of taking your own life, I want you to call me. I don't care if it's 2 o'clock in the morning, I want you to call me. If you need help, we'll get you the help that you need, but I want to talk you through it and help you through that. Because the pain that that leaves the people that are left behind, it might be over for you and your, your suffering, but it only begins a lifetime of suffering for every person that ever knew you, ever. And you can't do it. God's created you for more. So we're, gonna, we're actually gonna take a look at what the Bible says about that. The Bible actually talks about that later on this year because I think it's important for us as Christians to be prepared for things like that. But know this, whatever failure you got hanging on you, cast it off tonight and move on. If you've blown it with your New Year's goals that you have, cast off your failure and just move on. If you have a Bible reading schedule where you're supposed to read through the Bible every single day and you're supposed to check off the five chapters that you read every day and you're a day behind, just move on. Several years ago, I had a, I'm the type of person that I'm not good when people challenge me because I'll take on these challenges, like the, the whole 10,000 push-up thing. It just doesn't work well for me. I ran a 5K one time, and my, I told my wife after I go, that was awesome. It was so much fun. I said, I think I could probably run a marathon. And she's just like, you just ran three miles and almost died. There's no way you can run a marathon. Don't say that. She goes, you couldn't. Done. It's been 18 weeks, trained, ran a marathon, right? After that, I said, I think I'm going to try a triathlon. She's like, I know you can do it. You don't have to anything to prove. <laughs> but I heard a pastor say one time, and he was talking about reading the Bible, and he says, you know, if you, if you spend uh, 20 minutes or so a day, you can read the entire Bible through in a year. I'd heard that before, you know, five, five chapters or so. But he said this. He said, if you were to spend four hours a day reading the Bible, you could read the whole Bible through in a month. And he says, and it sounds like a lot, but it's only two hours in the morning and two hours at night. How about that? And here's what he said that really messed me up. I've never known of anybody to actually do that, though. Oh, really? Challenge accepted. Done. So that's what I did. I, 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 got, a, I got a brand new Bible for just this, right? This is going to be my 30-day Bible Bible, right? And so I started off. First day, I killed it. I got up at like 4 a.m. I read for two hours. And that night, before I went to bed and sat around watching TV or something like that, I read the Bible. And it was awesome. First day, golden. I did this for like a week on a really good clip, and I was, I was moving through it. I thought, man, I got this. This is cake, cake. Then I missed a day. And so the next day, I had to read eight hours. I got like three in that day, which means I've got five that I carry into the next day, which makes nine hours. <laughs> Here's how dumb I am. I got up at 2 o'clock in the morning, I put on a pot of coffee, and I'm chugging coffee while I'm going through the Bible, trying to get my nine hours to get caught up at that point. And uh, I told my wife, she, she got up and she saw me at the table, and I was like, I got four and a half hours in, I'll do the other four and a half tonight, I'll, I'll probably be up to like 2 a.m. again. And she goes, are you kidding me? And I go, no, I'm, I'm, I think I can get, get caught up. And she said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. What? Reading the Bible? Trying to be all spiritual. What, reading the Bible? That's, that's a spiritual thing. What are you talking about? You know, get on my level. And she said, so what have you read today? The Bible? No, you've been sitting down here for four and a half hours with a pot of coffee. What have you read? Uh, the children of Israel, they like disobeyed and God got mad. And um, she's like, that's the whole Old Testament. What did you really read? I don't know what I read. I read for four and a half hours and I don't know what I read. And she goes, see, that's the problem. And I got it. It's not about reading 
10 chapters. It's not about reading for 10 hours. It's about reading something from the Bible that will change your day. That's it. Hey, look, I'd rather you spend three minutes reading the Bible in the morning that you get something out of than I would rather you read zero minutes that you will definitely get nothing out of. I'd rather you pray for 30 seconds at mealtime than to pray for zero seconds all day long. Just small changes, and when you blow it, stand up, dust yourself off, move on. When you sin, God, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me, I wanna change, I'm over this, I'm just gonna move on. That's what it looks like, because you will fail. I hope you don't, but I know you will. We're probably gonna blow it. Somebody in this room is gonna blow it before the end of the night. It's gonna prophesy that, right? We don't really do prophecy here, but the, you know what I mean. All of us will definitely blow it before the end of the week. And when we do, will we do it, how will we handle it? Is it gonna be like, oh, I'm a sinner. God knew that when he created me. What's the big deal? Or are we gonna be like, oh, I'm a terrible human being. I don't even know, I don't even know if I'm saved. I can't even call myself a Christian because I'm such a wretched sinner. Or will we say, I'm forgiven by the grace of God. I'm tired of living like this. I'm just gonna pick myself up and move on. I highly encourage that option. Let's do it. Most important thing in the entire world. If you're here tonight and you don't know for sure that you're saved, you're not 100% sure that when you die, heaven is your home. Know this, your sin rests upon you 100%. You're responsible for it. But I wanna ask you tonight to put your sin on Jesus Accept the gift of forgiveness that he offers through his son, Jesus, and your life will never be the same. I promise you that.